And in looking at this series and planning ahead, one of the kind of hot topics that would be really easy to dodge when it comes to this kind of broad umbrella as a, of the family is the subject of divorce. Now, I'm a church lifer, but I've heard very little in-depth in teaching um, from the pulpit on this subject. And so I wondered, do we do a class? Do we do it at night? Do we? And I thought, you know what, let's, let's, let's try this. Uh, let's do this in here. Because most Christians, when they're asked what the Bible says about something like divorce, they'll say something like this, well, uh, you know, Jesus said that you can only get divorced if um, somebody commits adultery, and, but then if you get remarried, then that's adultery. Um, and then they might add something from the Old Testament uh, that many of us have heard. They'll say something like, you know, and somewhere in the Bible it says that God hates divorce. And really, that usually sums up what people actually know. So I want to say a few words before I set this up here, because this is kind of a tender subject for many of us. Because some of you are here today, and maybe you're concerned about the state of marriage in our society. Rightfully so, right? Maybe you're thinking, wow, I, I sure hope that this message hits the value of commitments and of making that promise, which is super important to do. I agree with that. Um, but, but others of you, you're here, and I'm aware that, that some of us might be struggling in your marriage, uh, and you're not sure what you want to hear right now. Maybe if you, some of you aren't married, um, but you came from a home where uh, your parents got divorced, and maybe you still, some of us still feel sadness from that. Um, yet others of us, statistically for sure, uh, have been through the pain of divorce as a husband or a wife. And, and maybe, maybe you were at a different church than this where the message to you was that divorce is almost like an unforgivable sin and maybe you felt defective or um, you felt like damaged goods for getting divorced. And, and that's really sad to me because the church can kind of shoot its wounded sometimes. And, and I grew up around some folks and, and went to Bible college with some folks that were a little bit like that. Um, and, and so when I went through divorce, it actually made it harder to deal with because I had a lot of this garbage that I had to sort out with all these things that I was taught uh, as a pastor in that culture. Like I had so much shame from being a pastor, then getting divorced, uh, and it was crippling for a long time because I felt disqualified. So that's part of why I want to make sure we include this in this series, and, and I want you to know especially if you come from a background that has been touched by divorce, that my hope is that this message will offer a lot of hope and healing. Because I've, I've never met anybody that walked down the aisle thinking, you know, I plan on this ending in divorce, right? Um, and, and some of you, probably rightfully so, might be like, hey, this is kind of a controversial subject. Is it okay that we talk about this? And my answer is, um, of course it is. Jesus talked about it, and anything that Jesus talked about, we can talk about, and he'll help us as we do it. So, so let's get to it, and I want to warn you at the outset, this is going to walk through a lot of information, so in order to get some insight on what the scriptures are saying of these passages that many of us might be familiar with if you grew up in the church or have studied the Bible, um, I want to give us some history and context so we know what the story was that this stuff was being taught into. So you're really going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to dial in. I'm going to ask you to be patient because this is going to be more of a teaching message at least until the end. Um, and so just, I'm going to ask you, just be patient and stay with me, okay? Just be patient and stay with me, okay? Oh, okay, wonderful. Whew, I was worried already I'd lost you there. Um, <clears throat> Also, I, I want to mention that I'm real indebted to John Ortberg, who more than a decade ago preached a great sermon on divorce that really helped me, uh, and to a guy named David Instone Brewer. He is a writer and biblical scholar who's done 
the best research on this particular topic. So let's start way back, ancient history here, way back in the ancient world, uh, before Jesus, before even uh, much of the, New, uh, the Old Testament, um, the ancient Near East, it was pretty much governed by the Hammurabi Code. Some of you maybe heard about that code in history classes back when you were in school, which wasn't that long ago, right? right. For some of us, right? <clears throat> yeah. Now, if, if you were a wife under that code back then, your husband could divorce you at any time for any reason just walking out of the house. So you'd be stuck with the kids, you'd have no money, and so let's say that happened to you, and then, and then you had some sons, and maybe you found a way to raise them, and they got old enough to work the farm, maybe even turn a profit. Under that law and code, then your ex-husband could return any time he wanted to. Reclaim the kids, reclaim the house, the farm, the money. And so what that meant, if you were a wife in that culture, even though technically you could remarry, the reality was no man would ever remarry if husband number one was out there lurking around and could come back and reclaim it all, right? So the sad thing is if you were a woman in that culture and your marriage broke up, you were in big trouble. See, back then, uh, in that day, divorce involved a lot of contention around money and finances. Fortunately, in our day, people are way more mature going through a divorce, right? They hardly ever fight about money. Yeah, that, by the way, is the only humor you're going to get out of this message. I hope you enjoyed it. So, um, Now, in that, in that day, in that culture, as is true today in most of the world, women were very vulnerable. And so when God gave the, the Jews the law of Moses, one of the striking aspects, impressive things about the law of Moses compared to the laws in the ancient Near East was its concern for women. So when we read the Old Testament, it was clear from the book of Genesis that God's intent was that a marriage be a permanent commitment from a husband and a wife. Like, that's the plan. One man, one woman, no options, leave and cleave, the two become one flesh. That is a summarized version of God's design for marriage. But because two broken humans are always involved in marriage, sometimes divorce does happen. And God's intent for marriage falls short. So back in that culture, if a marriage did break up, Moses said in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then he finds, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, the certificate was a way of protecting the woman. Because it meant that that first husband could never come back and reclaim her. And so that certificate always had a phrase on it. You are free to remarry any Jewish man, or if it was the other way around, a Jewish woman that you wish. Now, Deuteronomy here in this passage, it mentions divorce on the grounds of indecency. And in the Hebrew, the translation is for the cause of sexual immorality. So that is a grounds for divorce. Which brings up a question that many of us ask today. Okay, well then what about other cases? Like was there provision for divorce in uh, cases of abuse or abandonment? And in the Mosaic Law, those laws were, uh, cases were also covered in, in a different way that seems a little more roundabout, but that's just how they interpreted their laws and how it worked. So we look at Exodus 21 and find another classic text on how divorce worked in that culture. The law here covers the question, what happens if a man takes a second wife? Which I would have just thought, okay, well, then you get divorced, right? But um, this was also designed to protect the interests of the first wife, and I'll show you how it applies in a moment. 
Uh, the scripture reads in Exodus 21, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her, the first wife's, diminish her food or clothing or conjugal love. If he does not provide her those three things, she is free to go without payments of money. Once again here, the law of Moses was seeking to protect the woman, right? In this case that Moses was talking about, the husband takes a new wife, and surprise, the new wife tends to get the good stuff. And so the law of Moses said, well, when he, when the husband married his first wife, he made vows to provide, right, uh, food and clothing um, and love. So if he breaks either of those vows, then the first wife is free to leave, free to get a divorce, free to get a certificate, free to marry. Now, over time, Jewish rabbis looked at these two passages that became the classic text in scriptures for how divorce works, whether men had one wife or multiple wives. And here's what they said. They, they, the principle they said that's involved, and this is how it was guided, was based on these two texts, marriage involves a vow. And these vows include three primary promises to each other. The first one is faithfulness. So fidelity, no sexual unfaithfulness. That's the Deuteronomy 24 passage we read. And then the second one is a vow for provision. So food and clothing, um, and that comes out of Exodus 21, as, as well as the third one, love. And love would include affection and uh, sexual intimacy. So they established that marriage is a vow to be faithful, to provide, and to love. And many of our modern-day marriage vows are based off of these three vows from the Jewish culture, right? And sometimes, you've ever heard some really odd vows, like some really naive ones, like, I promise every day to make you feel alive and loved. Have you heard one of those? And yeah, I did a wedding where that was one of the, <clears throat> one of the couple's vows that they wrote. Amazing. So you're quick, but... Um. <clears throat> oh, well. That's what pre-marriage counseling is for, and post-marriage counseling, yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, the, the context here is those three vows, right? It's, it's faithfulness and provision and love, and when one of these vows gets broken in the Mosaic law, the victim of the broken vows has a right to get divorced, male or female, and let me add, that would include a right to get remarried, which I think is important to clarify because this question gets asked a lot. Somebody says, okay, well, fine, I can see that sometimes uh, divorce might be allowed, but then can people remarry? And this is a big deal in some church settings. Let me, let me just say, there was no such thing in Judaism as a divorce that did not include the right to remarry. Like, that was the idea behind why you had to have a certificate, right? The certificate was to prove that you were divorced and safe for someone else to remarry. So... Now let's look a little deeper at the vows of the Jewish culture and marriage. Again, remember what we just said there. Uh, the rabbis taught that marriage is a vow to be faithful, to provide, and to love. So rabbis, like, they, this was their full-time job practically to debate what breaking these vows meant because they took all of the words of Scripture very seriously. So they would ask, okay, things like, okay, how much food is included in that promise? Okay, like... What about clothing, right? Or how about, uh, we'll call it conjugal love, right? That's the kind of thing that, that rabbis did. And it was fascinating for me to learn that they came up with rules around the idea of uh, physical intimacy and what was required in order to fulfill vows made in marriage. Now, 
sorry, here's some of what they decided. And this is all from ancient texts and writings. I promise, I promise I'm not making this stuff up, okay? First, the husband had to offer to be physically intimate with his wife at least twice a week, and she had the right to divorce him if he didn't do it. Like, okay, all right, interesting. Like, they quantified this, okay? Now, because they're rabbis and they wanted to be very clear about the way they interpreted the law, they decided they'd make exceptions in some cases, this one I loved. For instance, if he was a donkey driver, it only had to offer one time a week, right? John Orberg says, maybe they figured it was like being a truck driver over the road, he'd be gone a lot, so yeah, once a week, okay? Um, my favorite one that they wrote was, or if the husband was unemployed, the husband had to make at least the offer of physical intimacy every night, seven nights a week, or his wife could divorce him, right? <laughs> I am not making this up. Like, rabbis actually said that. Like, I'm guessing they were probably all unemployed rabbis or something, but <laughs> nevertheless... All right, <clears throat> moving on. Um, so there's that piece there. So the question, so did rabbis think that you could get divorced for abandonment or abuse? So of course they would. They would say that abandonment would simply be the extreme form of breaking the vow to provide. And abuse would be the extreme form of breaking the vow to love. So in Israel, those were grounds for divorce based on their application of Exodus 21. Now, let me stop again here and be really clear. Um, even with this, these allows, allowances here, this does not mean that anybody believed that God thought that divorce was ever a good idea, right? It was not a good idea. But divorce was allowed as a way of preventing worse injustice and suffering when vows were broken. So, there you go. That was all there, the framework for marriage and divorce in ancient Israel. So let me pause for just a second uh, with a question. Anybody learn anything new that they hadn't heard yet before? A few of us? Okay, okay, good. Most of that was new to me back when I first studied it. So, all right, now let's move from the Old Testament time to the time of Jesus. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a new development. Two of the most famous rabbis who lived um, a few decades before Jesus showed up on the scene, they dominated the rabbinic teaching. They were named Hillel, and Shammai. Now, they were kind of like the big dogs among rabbis, and so whole schools were founded around them to interpret how to live out the law. Now, Hillel looked at the law in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses says that a man can divorce his wife for a cause of sexual immorality. He reflected on this text, and he said, well, Moses could have said that, his wife, uh, that, a, that a man could divorce his wife for sexual immorality, but he included those words for a cause of sexual immorality. Why did he include that phrase? And this is what rabbis did. They loved the scripture. Every single word has significance, and nothing was random or redundant. And so Hillel believed that, that this must mean there's another cause, a, a different one besides sexual immorality in this passage. And he said, since it was just the word cause, he concluded that it must mean for any cause. So in other words... Hope you're following me here. Hillel taught that Deuteronomy 24 meant that a man could divorce his wife for two reasons. One, sexual immorality, when the vow for faithfulness is broken. Or two, any cause. Like any cause divorce, right? Okay, stop and think about this. Um, Hillel was a man. Uh, the rabbis in his school were men. And they decided that this 
any cause divorce would be available to only one gender. Anybody want to guess which gender that was? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> men, husbands, real convenient for the men anyway. So any cause, Hillel said, covered just about any fault you could think of. And so they would list out, it means this or this or this or this. Things like, this is again from text, ancient texts, if a wife spoiled her husband's dinner, he could divorce her. Right? Burn the bagel, you're out, okay? Um, if she walked around with her hair unbound because that was considered improper, the husband could divorce her immediately. If she argued in a voice loud enough to be heard in the next house, you could divorce her, right? Yeah. <laughs> <Bruce>. <laughs> oh, I love Bruce. Yeah. If she rented two consecutive chick flicks, right? Yeah? Okay, I made that one up. I made that one. Okay, so one drawback, and again, I don't want to get too much detail. One drawback to this any cause divorce, it was more expensive. Like, so if a husband could say, no, I could prove that she cheated on me, then he wouldn't have to repay the marriage inheritance. But if he um, couldn't, it was an any cause divorce, then he'd have to, you know, fork over some money. It's more expensive to do the any cause divorce. But what Hillel was saying when Jesus' time uh, came, he had been saying, and people had been believing in Israel, now there's a new op uh, divorce option available. Never before in the history of Israel was this available, but it's the any cause divorce, and it's available to any husband, right? And soon, as you might imagine, it became the most popular form of divorce in Israel. Now, little side note here, this was interesting to me too, and I'm, I'm, I admit it, I'm a nerd when it comes to some of this stuff, so... Uh, humor me. You might not know that you knew this, but many of you do know a, a, a time in the Bible where an any cause divorce was considered. Uh, do you remember the story in the New Testament where Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant with Jesus before she and Joseph have gotten married? So Matthew 1.19, it says, because Joseph did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And quietly wasn't like a vague little adjective. It was a technical term. It meant he wasn't going to take her to court and prove that she'd been unfaithful, which would have let him off the hook financially. So he decided to get an any-cause divorce. No proof of adultery, no scandal. But he was also going to have to swallow the marriage inheritance and support the child. And that's the situation that was going on that Joseph had considered before the angel came and stopped him. It was an innovation of the rabbi Hillel. Now, the other guy, so we know about Hillel, the other important rabbi, Shammai, he disagreed. He said, no, 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 no. Deuteronomy 24 only refers to divorce being allowed for sexual immorality when the vow for faithfulness is broken. And of course, he would have agreed that text and also what we talked about, Exodus 21, if the vow for provision is broken or the vow for love is broken. But when they were talking about Deuteronomy 24 deal, he says, no, 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 and any cause divorce is wrong, bad interpretation, not correct. And so in Jesus' day, that's the debate between the rabbis who would follow Hillel and the rabbis who followed Shammai. And, and so everybody always wanted to know exactly where every rabbi stood on the subject. Um, it's kind of like the, in our day, we look at politicians and say, hey, where do you stand on you know, capital punishment? Or where do you stand on abortion? Are you pro or are you con? Right? We want to know about these things. And it was the same way then. So that explains where we're at here with Jesus in Matthew 19. It says, Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, does this question sound different with all the context here than maybe some of us have heard before? Okay. 
And again, until I understood the context, this sounded pretty narrow. <clears throat> and I think, not out of bad reasons, but I think it gets narrow for us because out of good intentions. Like we want people to work it out, and we do. But we can misunderstand exactly what was going on when Jesus said what he said right here about divorce and remarriage and adultery. Okay? So in my opinion, and in the scholars that I've studied, the rabbis weren't asking what a lot of the Christian church thinks the question is here. Um, they were not saying, hey, Jesus, rabbi, is divorce always against the law? Like, that was never debated in that day. Like, divorce was in Moses' law. I mean, no, no rabbi would have said, hey, uh, is it lawful for us to follow Moses' law, right? No, it's in the law. The vow to be faithful, to provide, the vow to love. So what they're asking Jesus here is, Jesus, how do you interpret Deuteronomy 21? Do you, are, do you agree with Hillel or Shammai? And by the way, I don't even think they're that interested in Jesus' answer. The text says, another translation says, they came to test or trap him. Now, here was the trap. Here was the trap. A little background. In that day, the ruler of Galilee was King Herod. Herod had been married to his first wife, but fell in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. Maybe because of their similar names? I have no idea. Um, so Herodias, she was married, he was married. So he divorces his first wife, and she does the same with his brother so he could marry her, which would have made things very awkward at Christmas. Um, only they didn't have Christmas. They were Jewish. So okay, yeah, we're good. We're good to go. Um, so in the book of Mark, where it tells this story, it says John the Baptist hears about this and confronts Herod and says, it is not lawful for you to have Herodias as your wife. And he said that because of the any cause divorce. Now, does anybody remember what happened to John the Baptist as a result of his confrontation? Yeah, he gets thrown in prison, and then she gets his head chopped off later, right? So when the Pharisees come to test or trap Jesus with this question, it's a loaded question, and they know it, right? That's why they're posing the question to Jesus. So Jesus is brilliant, and he rewinds the whole thing to, to the beginning, right? Into Genesis, he quotes from Genesis, haven't you read, he says, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, right? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Then Jesus says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. By the, way, by the way, in the Hebrew, it doesn't have all that. Jesus actually adds the phrase, right? It just says, the two will become one flesh. So when Jesus says, the two of them, he's saying, uh, hey, by the way, it's not designed for polygamy, okay? This is supposed to be one man, one woman, permanent commitment. The two become one, leave and cleave. So that's what Jesus is alluding to there. Now the Pharisees respond, verse 7, well, why then did Moses command that the man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And so Jesus goes on here to say that if you do that whole any cause divorce deal, you're wrong. And if you do the any cause divorce and you get remarried, which would have been the expectation in that culture, that's adultery. Now, here is why this is confusing, because this is just one text that Jesus is being questioned about. And so when we read it without the background and the history and the knowledge of what he was being asked, then, then the only thing he mentioned here in this was the sexual immorality. 
the breaking of the vow to be faithful. So many people believe that the New Testament position is that the only biblical grounds for divorce or divorce and remarriage is adultery. And that interpretation, I think, has led to heartbreak and confusion and I believe oftentimes tragedy. Like I have done uh, um, counseling with people and, and heard this kind of thing said by a woman. You mean that if my husband beats me, beats our children, is addicted to drugs and alcohol, steals money, tries to kill me, I got to stay married to him? But if he strays one time sexually, then I can get a divorce? Like people believe that that's what it means to be you know, biblical on this particular issue. Like that is an interpretation that people think is consistent with the heart of God. And there are women who love God and want to do the right thing, are so concerned, and they, they could ask, you know, so my husband can threaten to kill me, threaten to kill my child, and I can't divorce him? So just listen, friends, here. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is not teaching about what his whole Jewish framework of marriage and divorce that would have been his world as a rabbi. He's not talking about what happens when the Exodus 21 provisions, the failure to provide or love, are broken. And those are the verses. This, this verse right here is just that Hillel Shammai debate of his day. Any first century reader would have recognized it. They would have known what Jesus was talking about. He didn't have to go into it with them because it was in their culture. Um, similarly, it'd be like today, right? Okay, in our day, if someone asked you, hey, is it okay? Do you think it's okay for a 16-year-old to drink? We would automatically supply the words drink alcohol because we understand in our culture what the question means, Right? We know what it means because we're in the culture. I mean, can you imagine in 200 years if somebody reads like, wow, they used to wonder if 16-year-olds could drink. How do they live without water? I mean, it'd be... <laughs> so here, the first century readers understood the debate that was going on right then. Hey, Rabbi Jesus, what's your interpretation of uh, Deuteronomy 24? And Jesus' response to that in so many words was, I'm a Shammai guy. I'm against any cause divorce. And I'm convinced that he would have shared the understanding that biblically where the vows of marriage are broken and Jesus adds a great clarifier and where there is hard-heartedness, then divorce might be the only option. And so I, again, I just want to pause right here for a moment and be really direct. If there is somebody here in an abusive situation or you know someone or are walking with someone in an abusive situation, if you or your children are in danger, then get out now. You have to be safe. Like, too often, churches have not spoken clearly on this. Like, wise Christian counseling can help. Um, being a part of a Christian community is important. But please do not think that obedience to God means remaining in a situation where you or your children's lives are in danger. Like, that's not biblical. It's not loving. It's not wise. That is not what Jesus teaches. So get safe now. Now I want to touch on just one more thing here. Um, I was not sure if I was going to throw in, but I think it's important here. Um, even with all this research, I was like, well, is that really what Jesus, what if, what if he just meant that that's all he was going to teach about divorce and that was the entirety and the rest of it was all wiped out? Here's one thing that convinced me that that passage that we read from Jesus is not his entire belief on what divorce was. In 1 Corinthians, after Jesus has finished his earthly ministry, the Apostle Paul teaches on divorce, and he says, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. 
a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. So in other words, if your spouse abandons you and the marriage is over, then you're free to remarry in the Lord, Paul adds a little bit later, um, in other words, to a believer. Now, when Paul taught this, he did not understand himself to be amending Jesus, like, like adding to it and saying, well, Jesus did teach that divorce thing, but he should have added this on. He's not tacking on additional grounds for divorce. He's not adding abandonment as another ground for divorce in addition to what Jesus said with adultery. Because he would have understood that he and Jesus both grew up in this culture, this framework of the Old Testament law, that marriage was about to be faithful, about to provide, about to love. So he would have had that same understanding. He wouldn't just add something on. He would have known, no, I'm just clarifying one other thing about what we believe. Um, and by the way, sexual faithfulness includes not having an affair with another woman, but it also includes not having a life of chronic indulgence in pornography or something similar. Right? It's a vow. And God's intent is this is supposed to last for life, and that's God's heart for us and for marriage. But sometimes vows are broken. And even then, friends... This does not mean that divorce is okay, even if vows are broken. And in some churches, people get legalistic this way and say, hey, my spouse was unfaithful to me one time, now automatically I have grounds for divorce. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. The key, according to Jesus in what he taught, was hard-heartedness. Remember the religious leader said, why did Moses command us to get divorced? And Jesus goes, no, no, Moses didn't command. He permitted divorce because of hard-heartedness. So that idea there is that even if a marriage vow is broken, if a spouse is repentant, if they are soft-hearted, if they're willing to reconcile and work on stuff and, and rebuild the marriage, then rebuild the marriage. But if a spouse refuses to repent, if there's a stubborn, hard-hearted, defiant decision to reject reconciliation, to reject intimacy, to reject God, to reject his ways, to reject rebuilding, then it might be that divorce is the only option left. So when there's a breaking of vows and hard-heartedness, then sadly, it is an option that many of us maybe even have had to go into. So that's the teaching on Jesus and the scriptures, I believe, on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Um, so there's all that big teaching piece there. Thank you for mostly hanging with me. Bruce even stayed awake. That's good. Okay, that's good. Um, but, but I want to say a few pastoral words, because we've been through a lot of information there, and this is not a seminary course, right? This is not, my, in my view, Sunday morning is not supposed to be a seminary course. Um, and this is not an abstract subject. It's very personal. See, everybody, everybody will be touched by divorce in some way or another. Some of you have had your heart broken by divorce. Some of you have been shredded by it. Maybe you're wondering, well, is there even life after divorce? And I want to tell you that there is. See, I want to tell you about one more divorce in the Bible and what happened to reconcile it on the other side. The most striking picture that the Old Testament prophets used to describe God's relationship to the people of Israel was that they were in a marriage. God had made a covenant with Israel because he loved her. 
And so they took a vow. God would, would, would provide for her, care for her, and love her. And she was to love God in return. But as you know, if you've read through these Old Testament prophets, it's like a soap opera sometimes, just the raging um, things and the, and the anger and jealousy of this God who loves this people who is unfaithful to him. They're worshiping other gods. They turn their back on him. And if you go through the Old Testament, oftentimes idolatry is compared to adultery to unfaithfulness. And all of this unfaithfulness leads in Jeremiah chapter 3 to one of the most amazing and heart-wrenching statements in all of Scripture. This is God speaking. And he says, I gave, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Do you understand what this verse is saying here? God went through a divorce. Now let's put the verse on the screen that many Christians know about from the book of Malachi where it says, where, where God says, I hate divorce in Malachi 2.16. And a lot of people in churches know that statement. Some of us have even heard that God hates divorce. So we've wondered if we've gone through divorce, does God hate me? But friends, do you want to know why God hates divorce? because he's been through it. See, the prophets of Israel say that God is a divorcee. I mean, that he gave them a certificate of divorce. I mean, this will blow our mind. And if we don't hear the anguish in God's heart, then we don't fully know the depth of his love for us yet. See, God says, I have been through the humiliation of being rejected. God says, I know about the pain of betrayal. God says, I know about the anguish of broken vows from hard-hearted people. See, God hates divorce because he's been through it and he knows the pain, the anguish, the damage that happens to our hearts and souls when that most intimate relationship that's never supposed to come apart gets torn apart. So Jesus comes. And invents the first, we could call it, divorce recovery program. And he, he, he invents it at a place called Calvary. And the price for that course is a blood-stained cross. The price that, that Jesus paid for you and for me. So that we could be reconciled to him. We could be reconciled. We could be intimate with him again. In that day, Hosea even prophesied this. In the Old Testament, it prophesied. God said, in that day, declares the Lord, I will betroth you to me forever, forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. See, there is love and compassion at the cross for hard-hearted vow breakers like me who have not been faithful to God all the time. When it comes to this divorce between God and his people, we are all on the wrong side of it. We have all been unfaithful to God. See, and that's why I think any church, any denomination that divides people up into superior, non-divorced, first-class Christians and inferior, beat-up, divorced, second-class Christians is theologically errant and spiritually destructive. 
See, because on the most important level, the spiritual level, every one of us has been unfaithful to God. We are all divorcees in our relationship with him, and that's why we need the cross. And as a church, we want to be people who are humble and honest about the ways that we've rejected God and trusted in our own ways so that we can return to him. And so we restore that intimate relationship that he intended for us. And so, by the way, all of us need this Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you can turn your life over to him. You can come to the cross. You can go through that Divorce recovery program between God and people and come out the other side betrothed to God. You can do that, and you can do it today. But as I wrap up, I just want to speak to those of us who are dealing in our real-life marriages and our real-life stories. Um, if you're in a marriage already and you're struggling, maybe you can feel your heart getting hard. Um, and if there's any way that we can help you here, we'd love to do that. Um, we can recommend counseling from, from Christian counselors that we, that we trust, and so you can send an email or make a call to the office here, and we'd love to refer some people to you to get some help. Um, maybe you're someone who's gone through divorce already. Maybe you fought desperately to avoid it, and maybe you shoulder a fair amount of responsibility and guilt. You can get healing from God. You can know grace and forgiveness. You don't have to be stuck in anger and guilt the rest of your life. And, and I highly recommend one thing you can do in that. I highly recommend Divorce Care. It's a 12-week class that rotates at different churches all over the valley, and it has helped so many people recover from divorce, including Heidi and myself. We've both been through that class. But I think what God is saying to all of us here, no matter our situation and circumstance, um, is if you will let me, I'd love to heal your heart. And I'd love to begin that healing right now. Whatever pain, whatever hurt, things done by you or to you, God longs to wrap his arms around you now. So let's pray as we close. Father, there are people in every condition here this morning. Folks who've gone through divorce, people are struggling in their marriage, people who have never been married, some who have never gotten married because of what they've seen in their family, parents that went through divorce. God, wherever any of us are at, will you bring us all back to the cross? Would you make us here at Hope Covenant the kind of community that honors and holds up marriage really, really high, that we value marriage, and that we're willing to help each other fight for our marriages? We thank you for the gift of marriage and the gift of community. So God, in this church where imperfect people belong, thank you that you have made us a community of grace and hope and healing for all. God, thank you that hope is a place where unfaithful people are made faithful and changed by the love of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.